Isaiah 66, verse 2. The Lord says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Anytime we open God's most holy writ, we ought to be able to do so, or we ought to do so with some degree of trembling. Jesus said, not one dot, not one iota is going to pass away from the law before all things are accomplished. I don't want to miss a single letter or a single stroke. I want to get it all, but I don't want to jump on beyond it and try and get more than, than what God is intending. And so we have a certain degree of trembling, and you'll, you'll see why here in a moment. Isaiah 18, verse 1. We have in, this, in the middle of the book of burdens, this section of Isaiah, we have suddenly a burden, I guess you could call it, an alas, if you will, that is offered, but we're not really sure who it's offered to. And there are some guesses, and we'll talk about that, but let me just read it to you first. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters, go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. As soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. For thus the Lord has told me, I will look from my dwelling place quietly, like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then He will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches." They will be left together for mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them. And all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth. Even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, Mount Zion. So we open chapter 18 and we come to a nation unnamed. A nation that we're not sure who this is. And Isaiah begins with a sigh. He's done it before. Alas, he sighs. The the Hebrew word is oi. It is. I kid you not. Oi. I mean, no doubt you've heard the Yiddish explanation, oi vey, which literally means, oh, pain. Oi vey. But when Isaiah says, oi, it's more of a... I, you know, when you don't have anything else to say, you just go, ah. Oh. And that's how he starts off. He says, oi, land of whirring wings. But who is this prophecy all about? Who is he talking to? Bible scholars have debated this for millennia. Okay. Different ideas have been thrown out there. Some say, well, it's obvious, Rick. It's Cush. It's Cush. Okay. But who's Cush? Maybe you should back up a bit and ask that question. Who is Cush? Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. Anytime you're not sure who a people group are, go back to the table of nations. The table of nations is Genesis chapter 10. And it goes through, and starting with Noah and his three sons, and then their sons after them, we have an amazing description of where people came from. 
And in the table of nations, chapter 10, verse 6 of Genesis, the sons of Ham, remember Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three boys of Noah. The sons of Ham were Cush, and Mitzrayim, and Put, and Canaan. So those four came specifically from Ham. Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Cush is Ethiopia, modern-day Ethiopia. Mitzrayim is modern-day Egypt. Put, modern-day Libya, who just put Gaddafi out. And Canaan, the Canaanites, who are no longer with us. The people of Cush, however, in Isaiah's day inhabited all of the area that today we would recognize as southern Egypt and the Sudan and northern Ethiopia. So the whole entire Nile River Valley belonged to Cush. That was their region there in eastern, northeastern Africa. And the prophecy calls this region in verse 1 the land of whirring wings. Not worrying, but whirring. Like buzzing. In fact, the word means buzzing. It's zilzal. In the Hebrew. Zilzal. And in this region of the Nile uh, River Valley, there were uh, buzzing flies, buzzing insects, locusts, even the tsetse fly, which some commentators point out. Tsetse and zilzal sound an, an awful lot alike. Perhaps that's where the idea came from to call the fly the tsetse fly for all the buzzing, the zilzaling going on there. So the land of whirring wings, perhaps speaking of all the insects and the noise that they make with their with their buzzing wings. Verse 2 refers to papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. The Cushites were known to use these fast-moving papyrus boats to go up and down channels and waterways and wadis and even the Nile itself to get around quickly in the region. They're called a nation tall and smooth. And I've just learned this really in the last three years more than I realized before that African people tend to be more smooth-skinned. My kids just love to rub my forearms. They just think it's so weird like a hair on my forearm. And everybody's like, why don't you shave it off? You know? And Naomi just loves to rub it. You know, I'm reading her stories at night. She just rubs my arm. You know? (laughs) And of course... They're fascinated by my scratchy face, which gets scratchy. About an hour after I shave in the morning, it's scratchy again. And so Naomi likes to play scratchy face. And I, scratchy face. Anyway, not smooth-skinned here. And it just surprised them that we would be rough-skinned like we are when they are so smooth. Well, a nation tall and smooth. And the Cushites were known as a taller people, strong people, a smooth-skinned people. Especially as in comparison to like the hairy Middle Easterners. Okay, think about a hairy Arab and then think about a Cushite. Very different. They're called a people feared far and wide, powerful and aggressive, verse 2 continues. And the Cushites were known historically to be just that. They were a fearsome and aggressive group of people. They moved on things. They had no problem attacking, going to war. And at the end of verse 2, it says that the land, whose land the rivers divide. Now some translations say a land spoiled, or whose rivers spoiled, and the word can mean spoiled, but it literally means to cut. And so the, the word spoiled probably is probably just divided by rivers. A land where there are many rivers. And in northeastern uh, Africa, there would have been at the time. 
So you start to lay these things out and it makes sense that perhaps it is just a, a warning to the Cushites. Historically speaking, that would have made sense as far as what was going on in the region of Cush in northeastern Africa in the day. We know that in 720 B.C., the king of Cush took advantage. There was a civil war going on between Upper and Lower Egypt at the time. And during the civil war, the king of Cush took advantage of the entire Nile River Valley and pretty much mastered the whole thing, took control of it. So things were going on in Cush at the time that they may have been called out for. We also know during that time that Second Kings 19 verse 9 tells us that Judah made an alliance with Cush. What, what for? Against the possibility of the attack of Assyria. They got Cush behind them. They, they wanted to make an alliance with Egypt. They were going to the south. You know, we talked earlier about how, how northern Israel and the Arameans tried to make an alliance with Judah. And Judah wouldn't do it. Well, Judah was making alliances. They were making alliances, however, to the south of them. And they did, again, with Cush. So... Cush may very well be the near application of this prophecy. The near application. But as we've seen so many times, and I'm just describing it a little differently tonight, there's near application and there's often far application. There's often immediate application that is played out in the day or within a few years or maybe within a century. But there's also far application that begins to be played out way down the line. And God knows what He's doing. He gives a prophecy that's specific enough that it can give us a picture in history that we can see happening. But it's broad enough that that single picture can't possibly be the whole thing. A near application and a far application. It's the far application we've got to be careful with, however. Because it's the far application that can get far out. You know, can get a little weird. People can make up stuff. And, and cults especially love to take hold of, of prophecies and enigmatic scriptures and, and make them say all kinds of things about that particular cult. So that's part of the reason I tremble a bit. I believe, yes, that this does speak somewhat to Cush and to the situation going on. But the far application is the one that really intrigues me. And another possibility really does emerge here, and you need to look closely at the language to see it. We're told, first of all, in verse 1, a land of whirring wings which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. Not within, but beyond the rivers of Cush. Sending envoys by sea. The Hebrew word there, uh, beyond, is min. M-I-N, just a little word. It's translated beyond, but the actual translation of that word, it means from. From. So this land lies from the rivers of Cush, and the word from, literally, it's a marker of comparison. It means away from, at a distance from. So that's, that's the first little clue there. Lies beyond or from, men, the, the rivers of Cush. The second word is where they say, which sends envoys by the sea. The word for sea there is interesting. It's yam. Yam. Y-A-M in the Hebrew. And it's translated two ways. It's translated the sea, but it's also translated the west. So if you think about that, Cush, again, remember where I told you Cush was? It was southern Egypt, the Sudan, and northern Ethiopia of today. That was the region of Cush. In eastern Africa, if you look at a map, what sea is west of there? 
there's not even a large lake. There's Lake Victoria in Africa. Lake Victoria, which is larger than the Sea of Galilee. So you could even refer to Lake Victoria as a sea if you wanted to. But it's south. It's below Ethiopia. What is the first sea that you come to? You start heading west from Ethiopia, from Cush. The first sea you come to is the Atlantic Ocean. Beyond the rivers of Cush, envoys sent from the sea or from the west that come across. Well, what about these papyrus boats? Well, the papyrus boats are still used today, gang, for getting around and moving quickly. may be used even more in the future. And this phrase itself, beyond the rivers of Cush in verse 1, in Isaiah's day, it was like saying, way out in Timbuktu. If you lived in Israel and you said, yeah, it's beyond the rivers of Cush, you were saying, way far away. A place of a great distance. Way beyond the blue. Somewhere out there, off the map. (laughs) We might say, beyond the known world. I'll give you an example. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord says, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring offerings. And in the context of Zephaniah 3.10, he's talking about the, the diaspora, the Jewish people, dispersed from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, way out into Europe, and the Western world. So from way out beyond. This, alas, this prophecy is beyond Cush. Though it describes Cush very well, it's beyond. And I read it wondering, and I've, I've, I brought this up briefly when we were in our Revelation study several years ago. I kind of dropped it and then walked away from it, let everybody just deal with it. And I hadn't thought about it since then, to be honest. And reading this again, I have to ask the question, could this not be a prophecy to Israel, a future warning not to trust America? Don't trust America. The land of whirring wings. Our national symbol is an eagle with the great outspread wings. More than that, America led the charge when it came to the development of airplanes. A couple of brothers, Wilbur and Orville, they're at Kitty Hawk. Land of whirring wings. I love Mike Freeman's bumper sticker. I don't know if any of you have seen it. He has a bumper sticker on the back of his truck that says, I love airplane noise. (laughs) Oh, land of whirring wings. A nation tall and smooth. Now, tall and smooth. We've already established that at least your pastor is, well, I'm tall, but I'm not smooth. Um, What could this mean? The Hebrew words tall and smooth that are, are translated tall and smooth are literally, gang, spreading out and polished. A nation spreading out and polished. Wow, spreading out could very easily describe what was, well, a phrase that was coined in 1845 during the James Polk administration. And the phrase was manifest destiny. Remember studying that? Polk absolutely believed that it was our divine mandate to spread out across America. Whether or not the indigenous people wanted us here or not, spread out. Wipe out. Take over. It's our divine calling to conquer. And so we did. And Polk especially was, was eyeing the area of Texas and, and Mexican region saying, oh, no, no, it's our divine mandate. Manifest destiny, a nation spreading out from sea to shining sea. 
What about smooth or polished? Well, the word polished in the Hebrew there also indicates sophistication. It indicates advancement, perhaps even technologically. A nation spreading out, advanced, sophisticated, with whirring wings. Verse 2 continues to describe a people who are feared far and wide, powerful and oppressive, and some have accused the United States of being just that. Now listen, don't think Rick's going all liberal on you. But is that not out there in the world? Are there not those nations who say the superpower, the single superpower of America has no business here? You have no business here oppressing us, spreading out, coming into our areas. Except when help is needed. (laughs) And it's a land divided by rivers. The contiguous United States alone is covered with great rivers. The mighty Mississippi, the Missouri, the the Ohio, the Columbia, the raging Skagit. I mean, they're everywhere. (laughs) A land divided by rivers. When you start to piece this all together, could this land of whirring wings actually be a future indication of America? Now, I personally believe, after reading this and rereading it, praying over it and thinking it through, I, I do believe that at a minimum, this is a prophecy that speaks of the distant West. So perhaps England and America. Now, there are those who disagree. In fact, there are Bible scholars that I greatly respect who disagree with that. J. Vernon McGee is one of them. If you look in his commentary, he says, Oh, I weary of those who apply this to America or England. And I thought, well, you're going to be weary of me, Jay. Because as I read it, it makes sense just in the language and in the description and beyond that as well. Speaking of nations that in Isaiah's day were not yet players. In Isaiah's day, the immediate application, let's look at Cush, consider Cush, and and there's some application here. But speaking in far prophecy down the line, people who are not yet players in the Mideast geopolitical game, but would eventually be, Look at verse 3. We spent 22 minutes on two verses. We're doing pretty good, I think, actually. Verse 3. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth. Well, that's bigger than Cush. Suddenly, the application becomes very broad and the entire world is called to attention here. As soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And as soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. The prophecy goes global. Not just near and immediate, but far and future. This is one for all the inhabitants of the earth to pay attention to. A banner is raised for all to see. And a trumpet is blaring (laughs) for all to hear. Think about that. Banner raised. Trumpet sounds. But don't be confused and confuse this with the rapture. The blowing of the trumpet. I think we ought to connect to danger and a wake-up call because it's hand-in-hand with the raising of a banner as in an army about to attack. Flag goes up. The banner goes high. The trumpet blows and the army gets ready to attack. Something's going to happen to alarm the entire planet. Joel chapter 2 verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. 
The standards raised. An army's going to advance. The trumpet blows. It's a call to war. Oy vey. <laughs> Verse 4. For thus the Lord has told me, and here the Lord speaks, I will look from my dwelling place quietly, like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. What is that about? An alarm goes off. A call to war. A sound of danger. And God says, I'm chilling. You can almost imagine when you read that verse, God sitting on a front porch with a nice glass of iced tea in a long, hot summer. Sitting back as things are beginning to broil. What are you talking about, Rick? Listen. Every Middle Eastern farmer knows that the heaviness and the humidity that comes at the end of a long summer, that humid heat that comes in the early days of August before it gives way to cool, it's a sign autumn's almost here, and in this humidity, nobody's working. Note that. They're not out in the fields working. They're not reaping. They're not planting. It's the time in between. Nothing can be done. It's too hot. It's too heavy. It's too oppressive. But the harvest is just around the corner. Gang, it's a picture here, verse 4, of pause. Of pause. The seeming inactivity of God. The state starts to make religious determinations. And we ask, where's God? Marriage gets redefined and we say, where's the Lord? Rebellion mounts. Christians seem to weaken and we cry, Jesus, help! The enemy advances. Wickedness increases. The love of many grow cold. And we go, where's God in all of this? Father, are you there? Why doesn't He do anything? Why is He inactive? Listen, the verse tells us, I will look from my dwelling place quietly like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. That lazy early humidity of the fall. God is waiting for the world to finally ripen. He's patient. He's allowing sin to run its course. He's allowing the world... Well, Like when He said to Noah, Genesis 6.13... The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. But he didn't. Not immediately. He comes to know and he says, destruction is imminent. I'm going to judge. I'm fed up. And 120 years go by before the flood. What's he doing? He's allowing the fullness of sin to take root. It's like what he said to Abraham. In Genesis 15-16, he came to Abraham and he's describing his offspring and he's saying, yeah, they're going to go into Egypt and they're going to be oppressed and enslaved for 400 years. But then he says, in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. One of the reasons that God kept Israel in Egypt for 400 years was to allow the Amorites 400 years to make a decision. To make a choice. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You're either going to sin and sin more and sin worse until your rebellion is all-encompassing and I'm going to judge that, or you're going to repent. you got 400 years to do it, Amorites. There's mercy in that patience. In that heavy, 
humidity. You know, Les prayed for more of the Holy Spirit, more of the outpouring, and more of the anointing. There are those who recognize the heaviness of God in these days. Remember the word glory? Kabod means heavy, weighty. There are those who in these days recognize there is a heaviness. And it is like a heavy humidity in a hot summer. And we know God is here. And we know at present, He's waiting quietly. But He will not remain quiet forever. What are you saying? Just that inactivity does not mean indifference. Just because God's not moving... Listen, in your life... Just because God doesn't seem to be moving in your life the way you want Him to does not mean He is indifferent to your pain, to your struggles, to my difficulties, to my confusion. It doesn't mean God's just like busy somewhere else. You know? Or doesn't really care. Or isn't able to. He knows. He's allowing things to... And this is just... It's remarkably personal. God is allowing things to work out in each of our lives the way they need to. I don't know why. I don't know why I have to deal with certain things you all don't have to deal with. Come on. That's not fair. But God looks at Rick's life and says, I know what you need, and I am letting it work out. Inactivity doesn't mean indifference. The Lord is not slow about His promise. Peter said, 2 Peter 3.9, that some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that is so true in the life of faith. Inactivity does not mean indifference. It's why we're called to wait on the Lord. Because when we think He's inactive, He's doing something. He's aware I love what he told Habakkuk. You may have heard Les quote this. It's a favorite of Les's. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. The vision, well for Habakkuk, it was a vision he was going to be giving. For you, for me, it's a vision for your life. It's an eternal vision. It's a bigger thing than we know. And God says, hey, you might not see it all right now. You might not understand everything right now. Wait for it. Wait for it. Though it tarries, it hastens toward the goal, and all things will be accomplished. You know, while that farmer is sitting on that front porch with the iced tea in the heat of the long, hot summer, you know what's happening underground? Life. Growth. Maturation. So that when the harvest comes, well, that which is good can be harvested. That which is bad can be blown like chaff in the wind. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Isaiah 40, verse 31, that classic verse tells us those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And right now, right now, globally, worldwide, in history, I believe God is waiting for things to ripen to their completion. Both the good fruit and the bad. The wheat and the tares, so to speak. But the moment is going to come and is not far away when the reaping will begin. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, Before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape. Wait, wait, wait wait a minute. Do you hear that? Does that sound familiar? Before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms 
and the flower becomes a ripening grape. Jesus said, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near, right at the door. The fig tree produces those green branches, and as soon as they go green, you know there are going to be little buds. In fact, they get summer figs on them. They're often called, or not summer figs, early figs. They're pre-summer. Typically, when we go to Israel in, in the springtime, in March, they're already on the trees. And they're edible, but they're just kind of gross. They provide sustenance and strength, and if someone was traveling and didn't have anything else to eat, they could go pluck some early figs and eat them. They weren't sweet and tender like the figs in the summer or toward the end of summer, but you can eat those. And I immediately thought of that. Before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, see, it's hastening toward the goal. The reaping is going to happen. And he continues and he says, Then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them and all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. In the near prophecy, in the immediate, God waited for Assyria to complete their task. He waited for Assyria to spread out where it was going to, to do what it was going to do, to literally be the tool of punishment he was using with Israel. But when that task was done, he cut them down like sprigs with pruning knives, spreading branches. Assyria was spreading out its branches and God said, nope, and he lopped them off. But this message, remember, is not just for Assyria. It is for all of the world the entire inhabited earth. And so Jesus said in Matthew 13.30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. That is, the tares and the wheat. The weeds and the wheat. And in the time of harvest, Jesus says, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. In John 15, verse 6, Jesus said, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Oh, I don't like the sound of that, Rick. I don't want to go to hell. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, but the opposite is beautifully true. If you abide in Jesus, you got nothing to worry about. Abide in Him. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. The tares are growing. And as the tares grow, God waits. And He looks quietly from His dwelling place like dazzling heat at the end of summer for the final growth, the final reaping to take place. Verse 7. At that time, a gift of homage or homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. In the immediate, Cush may very well have brought tribute to the Lord in Jerusalem, although we have no historical evidence of that, but it's possible that perhaps that happened. But in the context of worldwide prophecy, as chapter 18 is directed worldwide, the prophecy of Zechariah regarding the millennial kingdom seems to fit with this final verse that these people bring an homage to the Lord. They bring, they come up to Mount Zion to worship the Lord there. Zechariah 14 verse 16 says it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem 
will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feasts, or the Feast of Booths. So is this a word for America? I can't say for certain. But you know, it is certainly for us to heed with humility and with contrite spirits and with trembling. But let's keep trembling. Chapter 19, verse 1. The oracle concerning Egypt. So we know exactly who this is for. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, at the heart of the, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. And then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Another oi. Near prophecy, far prophecy. Near immediate fulfillment, far distant fulfillment. The near fulfillment of chapter 19 is history. In Isaiah's day, after years of civil war between Upper and Lower Egypt, brother against brother, city against city, a cruel leader emerged. His name was Samatikos, Sammy for short. And he founded a dynasty. And he actually united that area of Upper and Lower Egypt, but it was a brutal uniting. And he was cruel and hard-hearted. But Egypt eventually was conquered anyway, so really this guy didn't last for long. The Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, came along in 671 B.C. He too was cruel. This is the son of Sennacherib, one of the two boys who murdered their father, and then he took the throne. So you can kind of get an idea of the type of person that he was. And he came along and conquered Egypt, this Assyrian king. So there is some application. Things were going on. Civil war was going on. A cruel leader did rise up, historically speaking. But again, I am more interested in far fulfillment than I am in history. History is interesting. But what about right now? What's going on in Egypt over this last year? Might the prophecy of this chapter speak to current events? Well, let's think about that. One year ago, a fire was lit that ignited the entire Arab world in what some, the political uh, spin masters and the press, have called the Arab Spring, which is supposed to be a marvelous move of democracy, a wave of democracy across the land of the Arabic people. December 17, 2010, jobless graduate Mohammed Bouazizi had his fruit cart confiscated by the police. You may remember the news story. He set himself on fire in protest and sparked a wave of protest across Tunisia. And the Arab world watched. January 1st, one year ago, 2011, a car bomb went off, side, uh, went off outside of a Coptic church there in Cairo. 21 people were killed coming out of a New Year's Eve service. 
70 people were wounded. One uh, young man who, who went deaf in the explosion described it as all he could see after the explosion. Everything went silent and all he could see was body parts and bits of flesh as this went off. Coptic Christians and Muslims took to the streets and began throwing stones at each other. This wasn't covered so much on the news, a little bit, but not as much as what happened on January 17th when a man set himself ablaze in front of the Egyptian parliament building in protest to poor working conditions and what was happening in the country. By January 25th last year, mass protests began and continued in Cairo's uh, Tahir Square. We watched this on the news, and, and of course the... Uh, the news casters and the pundits, they just loved it. And they were so excited. Look at democracies being birthed before our very eyes. It's democracy on the rise, even in Egypt. It's a wonderful thing. And what it did was topple the government of Hosni Mubarak. You know that. Hosni Mubarak, a Sunni Muslim. You know there are Sunnis and there are Shias. And that goes all the way back to the death of uh, Muhammad. He rose to power in 622 B.C. 632, he was poisoned and died. And so an immediate faction broke out. Uh, Those who said we ought to go with this guy, who uh, the, the Sunnis grew out of him, and those who said this guy and the Shias grew out of him. And I won't bore you with all the details there, but there's been bloodshed and fighting between the two ever since. It's not a peaceful religion. From 1980 to 1988, Iraq and Iran were at war. The Iran-Iraq war, you know why? It was Shia versus Sunni. Over one million Muslims died in those eight years. It's one of the most brutal wars in history. And it was the first signal to the modern world of what exactly jihad really meant. What are you talking about that for, Rick? Well, because Mubarak was a Sunni. Not a lot of Shias like Sunnis. In fact, the Shias in Egypt don't like Sunnis, didn't like his leadership, and saw this uprising as an opportunity to bring something about. The Egyptian military, once Mubarak was booted out, 30 years, by the way, he ruled in Egypt 30 years. Yeah, he was brutal at times, but he was stable. And after 30 years, he's booted out. The Egyptian military fills the void in in Cairo until parliamentary elections could take place. Where was America when all this was going on a year ago? Where was American leadership? I would say pretty much void. Do you realize we had an alliance with Mubarak? That we supported him? That 30 years ago, part of the deal was, we're going to help you, but you maintain stability and you keep the peace treaty with Israel. Mubarak did. And he has. And he has provided, or did during that time, a a sense at least of some kind of stability. But last year, when he needed the U.S. most, we stepped back, folded our hands, and watched. Caroline Glick just wrote last Wednesday in a Real Clear Politics article, she wrote, as Assad survives to kill another day in Syria, 
As Iran expands its spheres of influence and gallops toward the nuclear bomb, as Al-Qaeda and its allies rise from the Gulf of Aden to the Suez Canal, as they are, and as Mubarak continues to be wheeled into the courtroom on a stretcher, the United States' rapid fall from regional power is everywhere in evidence. And it took one year. The Arab world right now looks at the United States as weak and impotent. And to an Arab, to the culture, that means rise up. Time to fight. You show weakness, that's just a sign to attack. January 25th, 2012. Again, last Wednesday night, the result of Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian parliamentary elections came out. Let me just read this to you. Washington Post World, January 21st. Cairo, the political wing of Egypt's most historic Islamist party, won by far the largest number of seats in the first post-revolutionary parliament. Final results confirmed Saturday and is now poised to play a dominant role in the drafting of a new constitution. The Muslim Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party, (laughs) Muslim Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party, which is an oxymoron, took 47% of the seats in the House of Parliament. The next closest was the ultra-conservative Salafist Nur Party winning 25% of the seats. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that extreme Islamists, Shia Islamists, took 72% of the seats in Parliament, a Parliament that will now draft the new constitution for Egypt. Radical Islam is now in the driver's seat that Mubarak was driven out of. The Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood was founded in 1928 for one specific purpose, to restore the caliphate to Egypt that was lost when the Ottoman Turks conquered Egypt in 1517. 1517. 400 years go by and a group of Radical Muslims in Egypt said, we got to get back to 400 years ago. And they formed the Muslim Brotherhood. And by the way, do you know what other organization came out of the Muslim Brotherhood? Any guesses? Hamas. Hamas. They formed Hamas, the terror organization that, that holds the Gaza Strip, which is the only land there between Israel and Egypt. And 72% of Shia Muslims now... 72% of the parliament is ultra-conservative. I'm telling you all this to say, as we read through this, these first four verses, and we talk about the Lord inciting Egyptians against Egyptians, which continues on the streets, and the violence and the bloodshed continues on the streets, and the only thing that keeps a lid on it at all is the Egyptian military, which, by the way, as of last week, has just sidled up to and allied itself with the Muslim Brotherhood. Biblical prophecies are real-world declarations by God. They are not games. When the Lord says, this is going to happen, it happens. And we don't play at prophecy. In fact, we should never play at prophecy. This is absolutely serious business. It is truth. And the Lord declared there would come a spirit of turmoil, a spirit of deception, Egyptian against Egyptian, brother against brother. He declared a cruel master would rise up, bringing with him mass turmoil and destruction. But read on. Verse 5. 
the waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament. And those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn. And those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected. And the pillars of Egypt will be crushed. All the higher laborers will be grieved in soul. Grieved, I wonder, enough to light themselves on fire in front of Parliament, perhaps? You're making a connection there, Rick? I am. We'll get back to it. Verse 11. The princes of Zoan, which is Tanis, are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you mere men say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. Something happens here. Something is described here. And again, the question that arises is, do we have application? Can we see this having happened or occurring now at any time? How many here have heard of the Aswan Dam? The Aswan Dam. It was planned to be one of the grandest achievements of modern technology. Between 1960 and 1970, then Egyptian President Gamal Nasser... He comes out with the help of the Soviet Union and they say, we're going we're to build a dam. We're going to control the flow of the Nile River. And in so doing, it's going to vastly improve farming and irrigation. It's going to be a wonder for the country. Gang, the environmental and social impact has been disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. You just read about it in verses 5 through 13. The impact of this movement, it cost Egypt over one million acres of prime real estate that ran along the Nile. Gone. I mean, literally gone. Dried up history. It's toast. They can't plant there. Because of all the sediment and, and the salt that now is in the Nile. They're in denial. <laughs> over the whole thing. Hundreds of thousands of Egyptians were displaced because Lake Nasser flooded when they built the dam. So people lost homes right and left. Even fishing in the Mediterranean and fishing throughout out the Nile has been vastly undermined and weakened because nutrients that used to flow through the Nile now are trapped and are not making it across the dam. And it's been an absolute disaster. In fact, it's been called one of the greatest ecological disasters of our time. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the Bible is prophetic. <laughs> and say that we actually do see fulfillment of biblical prophecy in our day. You know, one of the things that God had to take some time with me to work out of my fuzzy brain was that all biblical prophecy 
was fulfilled back somewhere in history. That it was that's history. That's not of interest now. Stay out of the Old Testament. Spend your time in the New because this stuff is irrelevant. It's just not. It's not for us. Wrong. Why does the Lord call us to study His Word inside and out? Why is it so important? Because He is completely talking to us, constantly talking to us, saying to us, this is important, I want you to be aware, and by the way, I am God and my purposes will not be thwarted. So I'm going to speak it here and I'm going to do it here. And He has not stopped doing that. Oh, He is not as quiet as people may think. Isaiah 8.20 to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, is because they have no dawn. What does that mean? They're clueless. If you stay out of the word of God, you're clueless. You don't know what's going to go on. You don't know what's happening. You don't understand why things happen as they happen. You have no dawn. Proverbs 6.23 says, The commandment is a lamp. The teaching is a light. And reproofs for discipline are a way of life. It's a light. What does the light do? It helps you see in the darkness. And without the light, you can't see. So again, you don't know what's up. Reproofs for discipline, he says, are a way of life. Prophecy study, again, it's not just church ear tickling. It is a way of life. I like that. That kind of struck me today. Wow, this isn't just about a Wednesday night teaching. This is a way of life. What does that look like? It means when things are going on in the world, when there's unrest and difficulty, it means I go to the Word of God to see why. It means I go to the Bible to understand and consequently to be encouraged and strengthened and have my faith restored. Comparing and testing and discerning this world that we live in against the Word of God which we've been given. 2 Peter 1.19 we have the prophetic Word made more sure. To which Peter says you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. And Peter specifically says the prophetic word. That's a third of of Scripture. Two-thirds of Scripture are history or teaching. One-third is the prophetic word. And Peter goes so far as to say, hey, you need to be in Bible study, but you especially ought to pay attention to prophecy. Because it's a light shining in a dark place until the morning star rises in your hearts. Let me ask you this. What makes you tremble more? His Word or this world? Because if you find yourself trembling when the news is on, trembling when politicians speak, trembling when war happens, trembling when there are problems, but the Bible just collects dust, something's amiss. We should be trembling in this world and absolutely brave and stalwart. In this word, brave and stalwart in the world. Because, and I I think I've said this before, the one you fear is the one you're going to serve. And if you're trembling in the world, you're going to serve the world. But if you tremble before the Lord and His Word, you will serve the Lord. And His Word will be the tool. Let's go on. Verse 16. In that day... Remember we've pointed out, it's a favorite phrase of Isaiah... And when Isaiah says, in that day, he tends to be speaking, and context always shows us this, he tends to be speaking of far prophecy. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women. (laughs) No offense, ladies. (laughs) And they will tremble and be in dread 
because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which He is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. (laughs) Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which He is purposing against them. And I think, man, of the Six-Day War and how Egypt collapsed. The Egyptian military literally collapsed before mighty Israel. And I think of the Yom Kippur War. First and only time Israel was completely caught off guard. As Egypt from the south and Syria from the north attacked and Israel was completely unprepared. Everyone was at home celebrating Yom Kippur. They chose that holiest of holy days for the Jewish people to attack. And the Egyptian military, again, collapsed before little Israel. Well, that's because Israel vastly outmanned and outgunned them. 200 Assyrian tanks faced off with one Israeli tank. Guess who won? And that kind of thing happened throughout the stories. And these two wars are just like, there's only one way that Israel survived those. God put the terror of the Lord into the heart of the enemies of Israel. I think when the Egyptian army imploded in in both of those wars, somebody forgot to read the story of the Exodus. (laughs) I mean, if just one Egyptian said, you know, that Red Sea thing should have been a signpost. Maybe we should have learned back then. <laughs> could, have, could have saved a whole lot of trouble. The word terror in verse 16 is shagah. Shagah means a cause of reeling or literally a confounding. And even today, Israel confounds Egypt. Israel confounds Syria. Israel confounds the Arab world. They just don't understand how this puny little piece of land can be held by these people. It's absolutely confounding to them. Makes no sense whatsoever. But gang, it's not the hand of Israel that is confounding. It is the hand of the Lord of hosts on Israel. That's what's terrorizing. That's what's confounding. It's not the purposes of Israel that are being meted out. It's the purposes of the Lord of hosts. That's why Israel's there. Not because they are a mighty military, but because God is a mighty God. It's why the people even still exist. And gang, listen, His purpose, God's purpose, is not for you or for me to have a purpose-driven life. (laughs) His purpose is for His glory. That is it. It's not to you and to me. It's not God working really hard to make sure everything works out just great for Rick. Because I want Rick to be happy. Oh, He does. He wants me to be happy in His holiness. He wants me to have the joy of His Spirit. But you know what? It is not about whether I find that that perfect line of meaning in this little life. It is that I enter on into eternity to spend eternity praising and glorifying Him. And that's His great purpose. His own glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Okay, pretty clear. Isaiah 48, 11, just in case you missed it. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? 
and my glory I will not give to another. So how in the world did He give it to Jesus? Only one way. He is Jesus. John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. You know what the purpose-driven life was for Jesus? The cross. Father, glorify Your name, Jesus said. And then a voice came out of heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And in John 17, Jesus prayed that great high priestly prayer, we call it, on the Thursday night, that beautiful prayer of Jesus, and He spoke these things. He lifted up His eyes to heaven, John says. And He said in verse 1 of John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. And you know what? God didn't say, well, I don't share my glory with anybody else. Because God the Son was praying to God the Father about the glory of God. He said in verse 4 of John 17, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. That makes me tremble. Glorify me. Let me read that again. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Wow. And He did. He did glorify Jesus. It was a glorious resurrection. John saw Jesus in glory in the Revelation. And God is going to glorify Himself in a way that will shake this world to its very core And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's His purpose. Now Isaiah gives a prophecy of the Middle East that is absolutely stunning. Watch this, verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan. What's that? Hebrew. Hebrew is going to become the national language of Egypt. (laughs) And swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction, or Heliopolis, actually, it's the city of the sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and He will send them a Savior and a champion, and He will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make Himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. What's this talking about? I believe a day is coming in the tribulation where a large number of Egyptians are going to find Jesus. And they're going to glorify Jesus, and they're going to cry out for rescue and salvation, and God's going to bring it. And He is going to save them. And the Lord will strike Egypt... Striking, verse 22, but healing. Striking, but healing. How dare he? He dare. (laughs) He's God. 
Rick, do you, do you think that God strikes people and then heals them? Yes, I do. Why would He do that? To save their souls for eternity. The big picture. As opposed to our little picture. God, how could you do that to me? I'm in process here. I know it's hot. I know it's humid today. And I know you don't think I'm moving, but I'm in process in your life right now. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and He will respond to them and will heal them. Now watch this. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. You know how that they, they get there? they got to go through Israel. That's where the highway runs. That's where it has to run. Back and forth through Israel. What does that imply? Peace. And in that day, Assyrians will come into Egypt, Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Egypt and Assyria. Enemies of Israel. Since from time immemorial are now worshiping together the Lord of hosts. And in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. This is absolutely earth-shattering. It's it's ridiculous. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. You know what I call that? Amazing grace. That the very enemies of Israel, by finding faith in Jesus Christ, will be saved and become friends of Israel and people of God. Egypt, my people. Assyria, by the way, is not just present-day Syria. The area, the region of Assyria, and what's being referred to here is modern-day Syria and Iraq and Iran. Just to push this amazing grace a step further, it includes that entire region, gang. And this is God's end game. We see it right here in chapter 19. His end game with Iraq and with Iran and with Syria and with Egypt and with Israel. And while people are waiting for the Arab Spring to produce democracy, God's going, that's not going to happen. What is going to happen is I'm going to strike all of these people. They eventually are going to cry out to me and then I'll save them and then they're going to know my grace. That's how it's going to happen. The Lord describes it powerfully and beautifully. By the way, Bible students, what is Egypt a picture of in the Bible? It's a picture of the world. A picture of the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, God is not anti-human. God is not anti-Arab, by the way, either. He is pro-grace. And He recognizes and realizes that all people, Egyptians... Syrians, Iranians need grace. Iraqis. God is not against anyone due to their lineage or their genealogy or their background. He will save anyone. You know this. He will save anyone who cries out the name of Jesus Christ. Now I was going to stop there, but I want to share chapter 20 because it's only six verses and it's very quick. And it is the application of chapter 18 and 19. In fact, 18, 19, and 20 go together. This is one complete uh, prophecy about Cush or perhaps Western world beyond the rivers of Cush, about Egypt, 
And this is all last day stuff. And he comes down to chapter 20. And you're not even going to believe this. I just got to read it to you. Verse 1. In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. Ashdod is a city uh, just north of Gaza. It's in the territory of the Philistines. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amot, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. Now, you heard me. Mark Twain once said, Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. Isaiah had influence. And God said, Isaiah, I want you to strip down. This bizarre, graphic, prophetic display would have an impact. Because what God does is He says, Isaiah, I want you to show the people what is going to happen. I want you to show Egyptians and the Cushites and the people of Judah... I want them to see graphically what's about to happen to them. Now, one thing to understand, uh, Isaiah probably wasn't naked as Jaybird. Okay? Isaiah normally wore the clothes of a prophet. And if you didn't know this, the clothes of a prophet, it was um, sackcloth, a sackcloth robe and sandals. That's what the prophets typically wore. It's what John the Baptist wore or looked that way too, as a prophet. Why would the prophets wear that? Because that's what people wore when they were in mourning. And so often the prophet was sent with a word of woe or mourning for the people. And that's what Isaiah wore. Sackcloth and sandals. And the Lord said, I want you to loosen the sackcloth from your hips. Take the sackcloth off. Take the sandals off. But understand that when they wore the sackcloth, which was incredibly itchy and bad against the skin, they typically wore an undergarment under it. So it's really more like saying, Isaiah, I want you to walk around for three years in your underwear, which is bad, but not as bad as walking around three years completely naked. Okay, so there was at least some decorum, but it would be humiliating, and it would be embarrassing, and it would get the point across to the people that he is indicating shame and humiliation here. Some commentators want to lighten it up and say Isaiah did this for three days or three months, didn't really do it for three years. I, I don't see that. I see verse 3 says... The Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years is a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush. So I think three years means three years, but I'm a little weird that way. I take it literally. He says, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then... They will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope. Where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? How shall we escape? Chapter 20 is not a prophecy, is not a word to Cush or Egypt. It is a word to Judah. Isaiah was the prophet for Judah. And so the Lord says, I want you to dress down, Isaiah, and I want you to be a symbol of Cush and Egypt for my people Judah. I want them to see you like that and realize this is what's going to happen to Egypt. This is what's going to happen to Cush. Why did he do that? He's asking a question to the Jewish people. 
a question we ought to ask ourselves. Very simply, where are you going to put your trust? Are you going to put your trust in the nations? Are you going to trust in Egypt or or Cush to save you from Assyria? Is that where you're going to put your trust? Are you going to put your trust in military power or horses or chariots? Are you going to put your trust in human ingenuity? We're going to put our trust in American exceptionalism. Israel today is once again realizing and recognizing it's alone in the world. Israel today is even wondering if putting hope in America is such a good idea. Hey, we've pulled out. We didn't help Mubarak. We kept quiet. We haven't really been much of a friend in the last 11 and a half years. For over 30 years, Israel had some hope that Egypt would maintain a peace treaty, the peace treaty signed by Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin. And that that peace treaty, if it's still here a year from now, I'll be shocked. Because the Muslim Brotherhood does not want peace with Israel. No wonder Israelis are feeling so isolated. But a lot of people do. A lot of people feel isolated in this world. So many people are trembling in our world today. Looking around at what's happening on the news again, on on the streets of the world and saying, what's going on? There is a lot of fear, a lot of trembling, and people are asking the question. I've heard this question more in the last five years than ever before in my life. And the question is, how shall we escape all that's happening? Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? And Jesus said in Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's do that right now. Let's stand up. Lord Jesus, we stand before You, the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. We stand, Lord Jesus, as Your people who have determined to put our trust in You. Lord, I love my country, but this is not where my trust is. I appreciate having money in the bank account, but that is not where my trust is. Lord, I am thankful that You provide me house and clothing and food, but that is not where my trust is. It is in You. It is in the the power of the blood of Christ that has washed me clean. It is in the promise of eternal salvation. It is in the presence of Your Holy Spirit who empowers us to do more today than we have yet done. We put our trust in You. I don't worry, Father, about escaping because I know when the call comes, I will escape to be with Jesus. And I pray only, Father, that in the time we have left, that we will pass along that Word and that the numbers of Your believers, of Your followers, will grow and swell until You call us home. I pray tonight for my brothers and sisters, especially for those who are waiting, Father, for You to act. Those who are waiting for You to move. Those who have waited a long time for some resolution to a problem or an illness or a difficulty. 
I pray, Father, for the strength to wait on You a little bit longer if that's Your will. And I ask, Father, for Your divine intervention according to Your will. And Lord, we stand, we pray tonight as one body, glorifying the name of Jesus Christ, our Lamb, in Jesus' name.